2: Still here in the drivehubler.com studio alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. I'm James Boyd here on 107.5 The Fan, midday show. Again, they haven't kicked me out yet, so I'm enjoying my time here. <laughs> we have my guy, Michael Scotto, NBA writer, podcast host for Hoops Hype. he been doing this for a long time. Probably didn't want me to say that, but um, he's a veteran in the game, knows a thing or two about a thing or two. So, Mike, how you doing?
3: What's up, bro? I'd like to think uh, young OG or Uncle Mike as some of the like late 20-year-olds call me, even though I'm only going to be 34 in July. But <laughs> I, I appreciate it, brother. It's good to talk with you. Happy, happy for your success. What's going on, my man?
2: Yeah, man, I appreciate it. I had a chance to you know, cross-path with Scott when I was covering the Pacers. Met him in person at the NBA Summer League, I'm going to miss Vegas this year. My goodness, I'll be enjoying Westfield and Colts training camp. However, enough about that. I know with the NBA Finals coming up, everyone's got predictions and things like that. And I've been asking pretty much anyone we can get on, what can Miami do to somehow, some way um, slay the dragon or slow down Nikola Jokic?
3: You know, when they, if they find the answer to that, I think the rest of the NBA would like to know Um, (laughs) uh, because you know what it is, James. I mean, he does everything. He could, he could shoot, rebound, pass score, um, you know, and and the biggest thing about the Nuggets is the supporting cast around him um, is outstanding. It, It fits his strengths. They've got some shooting around him and, and defenders and a guy like Kentavious Caldwell Pope, Bruce Brown has been a great role player for them. Jamal Murray's uh, a clutch and proven playoff performer. And Aaron Gordon, I think, um, is underrated. Uh, He's a guy that uh, can guard pretty much any position in the NBA. And um, he's expanded his game offensively and uh, is the perfect kind of glue guy for them. Um, It seems like it's all coming together for them and, for Miami with uh, Jimmy Butler, a guy that makes no excuses, goes out playing on a hurt ankle and, um, you know, is making the most of this season, really. Um, I think, obviously, you know, the X-Factor kind of matchup there is Bam Adebayo and Nikola Jokic. Bam has Mm -hmm. to blow him down. Um, Bam is a guy that's an all-defensive caliber guy, and, uh, you know, you got to you got to prove that here, um, and and do your best to slow them down. You're not going to stop them, but you got to try to slow them down, make it difficult, and uh, bridge that gap, because uh, usually that's such a wide margin that Denver wins that center matchup against any other team. So we'll see if Miami can do it. And and, and last but not least, you know some of their guys that uh, have a chance to get paid this summer, and Max Struess and Gabe Vincent have uh, shot the ball really well. And they're going to need that from them in the series.
1: Michael, when we look at what Miami's been able to do offensively during this run, particularly from beyond the arc, a lot of people were making a big deal after they got done with Milwaukee that, okay, well, their, their numbers are off the charts compared to what they were during the regular season. Eventually, that's going to level out and they're going to fall back down to earth. And that really hasn't happened as drastically as some thought it would, particularly when you look at how they close things out against Boston. And I'm not saying that. You can expect Caleb Martin to you know, average 26, uh, 10, and 5 this series and be 60% from the field, but when you look at Miami from downtown versus how efficient Denver was both inside and outside in that Lakers series, is there any edge there for Miami? And if there's not, how much will they need to overachieve from beyond the arc to be able to hang with the Nuggets?
3: You know, at a certain point, it just seems like um, they're at the roulette table in Vegas and they keep betting red and it hits. <laughs> um, I, I just feel like at a certain point, they're getting good shots. They're getting good open looks um, throughout the playoffs. They did it against the Knicks as well. I, I saw it firsthand. Um, you know, Duncan Robinson is also uh, kind of resurfaced a little bit. I know he missed a couple of shots at the end of... Uh, games against Boston, but um, you know, to me I I think um, you know, Denver's going to play inside out through Jokic uh, you know, and then the high post and kind of go from there, but with Miami a lot of it is through pretty much Jimmy Butler and uh, you know, they're going to obviously, Denver's going to key in on him so other guys are going to get looks it's just about knocking it down.
2: Michael we talk a lot about can a player be the best player on a championship team I think Nikola Jokic can be that player he could be closing in on that mark here soon in a couple weeks but when you look at Jamal Murray his career the injuries he had to go through the bubble Murray nickname that he earned and then kind of shed by showing what he can do this postseason what do you think a championship does for how we look at him and his career and just him as a player in this league
3: I think look Jamal Murray's a guy that you you think of a guy that overcame adversity, as you mentioned, with the injury. But um, he's always been a proven clutch playoff performer, and we saw that against Donovan Mitchell when he was in Utah um, previously. I think, you know, with the whole uh, Nikola Jokic you know, being the best player, can he be the best player on a championship team? Uh, You know, it's got a little bit of a reminiscence of maybe Dirk Nowitzki with the Mavericks. You know, until you you um, hop the fence and, and you make that leap, there's always going to be those questions. But, I mean, the guy's been an MVP. I, it's like, why not? Um, again, I think the biggest difference this year is the supporting cast around Denver and the continuity that they've built up uh, in years past. You saw previously when they didn't have Jamal Murray, um how they struggled a little bit with shot creation and in clutch moments. Um, I think they're a really good one-two duo. Uh, they work well together, and I think that being in Denver, they may not get as much publicity as uh, you know they should. And I mean, Michael Malone, their coach, has kind of hinted at that um, when they played against the Lakers, and I felt the, the media coverage was so. I think it's a combination of all those things. And, and with Jamal, he's a guy that rises when the, the lights are brightest on the biggest stage. So, uh, you know, I, I expect that for him. And this is a guy that, you know, many have been waiting to be an all-star caliber player in the regular season. But we know one thing. He definitely uh, goes up like like that caliber of, of a player in the playoffs.
1: Michael Scotto with us of Hoops Hype and USA Today. Here on the Fan Midday Show, Michael, for Miami and head coach Eric Spolstra, obviously this is on board with his crowning achievement, if not one of the most incredible runs that we've seen throughout his tenure as a head coach, given the cast that he's working with now compared to the big three days. But a lot of that that has been done on the defensive end, and we've seen multiple teams throughout this playoff run on Denver's side whether it was throwing Rudy Gobert, Carl Anthony Towns, KD, Devin Booker, Anthony Davis last series, try their best to figure out ways to slow down Nikola Jokic. And all of them have very rarely, if at all, tested the Nuggets on this run to the finals. With how dominant Miami can be from a defensive game plan standpoint, what's the best path to success for them? Is it trying to have a number of different looks or coverages to slow down Jokic? Or is it keying in on everybody else and letting the big man do what he's going to do, which is inevitably probably put up a 30 spot?
3: First of all, and Eric Spolstra, I trust. Um, <laughs> I, I think that with Spo, he's going to mix in. I think he'll mix in the zone defense, which I don't think Jokic sees a ton, um, to maybe make it a little tougher for him in the paint. I think ideally you want Jokic shooting the ball more outside on the perimeter. Um, offensively. Obviously, he's going to pass and find cutters, but uh, you want the other guys to beat you. It's going to be tough for them to stop both Murray and Jokic. You kind of have to pick your poison there. Um, You can't exactly send double teams to all those guys because everybody else is going to be open. So, I think is going to mix coverages, go with the zone a little bit. Um, We saw it in the Celtics series, how it stymied them offensively. Uh, Particularly, they forced Jalen Brown to the left. So, Whatever weakness Nikola Jokic has, if any, uh, Spolstra's going through the film. Again, this is, a guy, this is what I, I love about Spolstra he's a guy that came up in the video room um, really grinded to get to the position that he's at. And, and I think if anybody's going to exploit um, a weakness in a player defensively, it's Spo. He's going to find it on film. Um, so I, I look for them to kind of try to make this a grinded out series, slow it down a little bit, and, and mix those coverages against Jokic in particular.
2: So to pivot away from the NBA Finals to what's going on here in Indy, number seven pick, Mike, Mm -hmm. what do you think or who do you think are some players the Pacers should consider at that range that could help them? Because obviously I think we know at least down here watching the team from afar this past season, they've they've taken a step forward, but they're lacking some wings and some forwards, and you need wings and forwards in today's NBA.
3: Yeah, and I I think I I was waiting for this. You know, this is uh, this is your wheelhouse right here with Indy. So I would say you got to look at if Cam Whitmore falls. I think that's interesting. There Um, does you know one of the Thompson Twins fall potentially, Um, and then you got to look at. To me, I think you know if they go for a four. I think you got to look at Jarese Walker. I think you got to look at uh, Taylor Hendricks. And I-, I think either one of those guys would be a wonderful compliment next to Miles Turner in the front court. You've got your back court in the future and Tyrese Halliburton and um, Benedict Matherin. And so to me, um, you know, I-, I think you're looking at a combination of Cam Whitmore, Jerase Walker, and uh, Taylor Hendricks there at that spot. Any of those three would be a, a wonderful addition.
1: Michael, you go up and down the Eastern Conference and you look at the the beat reporters or the you know fan sites, wherever you want to go, and you look at headlines or conversations around these NBA finals, and it's has Denver and Miami revealed a blueprint or revealed a, a door where things can be learned for teams that maybe were outside looking in or teams that were in the middle of the pack within the Eastern Conference? And especially out west, even though you know it's like striking lightning in a bottle with where they got Jokic and what he turned into, is there this level of dream scenario parody that the NBA has been parodying for the last couple of years, or is this just an anomaly season where you have an eight seed like Miami? That's not something you can bank on out of the play-in tournament every year, and we'll be back to the higher powers that be come next year.
3: Well, I think you look at. Parts of their success that are sustainable to me include the continuity of the team uh, that they've been able to keep together, is one thing. I think number two, shrewd moves with the mid level exception. Um, you know, getting guys like Bruce Brown, Jeff Green over the years. You know, essentially they pillaged the Brooklyn Nets. But um, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be the success for everybody else in the league. But they've had to be shrewd and, and then draft well. Um, And and they've done that. They've been able to find guys that they could flip and trade. You know, they, they did that with bones Highland previously. Um, You know, previously it always was you draft. Well, you trade well, if you were like a mid or small market team and, you know, you would supplement through free agency. Lastly, I think that's kind of what Denver's done here. Um, And it's shown that, 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 uh, blueprint is sustainable um, if you can do it, and, and Miami, you know, again, they find these diamonds in the rough. They are excellent at player development, and you've seen that with all these. Un, you know, I can't tell you how many times on a broadcast, you know, they'll remind you, hey, you know, how many guys they have that were <laughs> undrafted? Hey, <laughs> did you know that? Hey, you know, I don't. In case you haven't heard this for like the tenth time, so and I get it, you know, I'm just I'm just joking, but it it goes to show you that. Those are the keys to success. For If you combine both of those teams, that's the blueprint. That's the outline for success for a small or mid-market team in the
1: NBA.
2: Michael, when we look at the blueprint, I don't think anybody's had a better blueprint than Golden State. How much does Bob Myers, not returning to them, change the landscape over there and maybe the landscape of the league?
3: Well, I think that I mean, time is going to tell. But I think the biggest thing about Bob was Bob was a guy that was able to have a really good pulse and relationship with everybody and kind of steer them through some tough times. He had a great relationship with Draymond Green, which I think is extremely important for that team. You know, Draymond's obviously a key part of their success. They're going to have to try to figure out what they're doing with his future, Um but when you look at the rest of the staff, I mean, they have a lot of continuity. You know, whether they go with anyone from Mike Dunleavy Jr. to Kirk Lakeb, etc. Um, you know, they they have plenty of continuity within the front office. Bob's still going to be there through uh, right up until the start of free agency, so um, you know he'll he'll still be heavily involved. So I, I think he'll be able to help them make this segue and transition. And then ultimately, um, you know, you go from there. Um, I think you've got to really figure out – you're at like a needle-moving point with some of those younger guys. They had already gotten rid of James Wiseman. What are you going to do with Moses Moody? What are you going to do with Jonathan Kaminga, who's looking for a bigger role? Um, to me, that's the, the question for – uh, the regime shift going forward. Obviously, what they're going to do with uh, Draymond Green's future. And, you know, you're also going to have to look at uh, potentially extending Clay Thompson at a certain point as well. There's a lot of money coming up with the new CBA. Um, so, that, that you know, they're going to have to manage. It's going to make it tougher for them uh, to make moves, mid level exception restrictions, trade restrictions. Um, but Joe Lacob said, you know, look, we're going to win no matter what. Well, uh, it just got a lot harder without Bob and with the uh, restrictions. So, I mean, they've certainly got the talent, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing how how they adjust and and how they pivot.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask and put you on the spot, is the dynasty dead? Because everyone wants to count the Warriors out. (laughs) No,
3: no. And I'm tired, you know, let me tell you something. I get tired of people like Planning a funeral for these guys. Like Steph Curry is still playing at a high level. Yes, Clay Thompson. You know, I know defensively, not the all defensive player that you know he was, but to me, Clay is still a really good player um, that a lot of teams would love to have. Draymond is still good defensively. Um, Kevon Looney is an underrated glue guy for them. Um, the, The you never lose the championship DNA from those guys. Those guys are winners, and they find a way to maximize um, to the best of their abilities. I don't want to see that core as a fan of the NBA and um, just for what they've done. I would hate to see that core get broken up you know, obviously they have to figure out you know Draymond's future and eventually Clay and whatnot. But um, to me, that group in a way also again shows you when you when you draft well and you retain guys and you build around them and find pieces what what can happen. So I don't I don't think you know the dynasty is done. Um, I think their success is even more remarkable. And because, James, you have to go back to – I always go back to the Oklahoma City Thunder when they had Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook. You know, people thought for a long time that they were going to run the NBA, and it it was shorter – it lasted much shorter than people thought. And, and I, I just think that with injuries, you know, and then you saw with the Warriors when Durant and, and Clay Thompson went down, you can never take a season for granted. you got to maximize and squeeze the orange. you got to squeeze the pulp as much as you can. And I feel like the Warriors do that um, to the best of their ability every year. I don't think the dynasty is done. And, uh, you know, I just think that they're going to have to make some strategic moves to to better the team, better the supporting cast. When they when they won the title, I think people forget that guys like Otto Porter, guys like Gary Payton um, helped them, and they were on minimum deals. They have got to find guys on veteran minimum deals that are willing to come there to chase a ring, play with, you know, Curry Thompson, Draymond, etc. cetera, um, that can be key contributors in the playoffs off the bench. I I think that's as much been a part of their success. They found previously like an Andre Iguodala. Um, I think that gets overlooked. Role players have a key importance in winning championships, and that's one of the reasons why the Denver Nuggets and Miami Heat are in the championship this year, when you look at their roster makeup as well.
1: Michael, how much does Monty Williams, making the payday that he got, Change coaching contracts, and we laughed at Detroit not getting Victor Wembanyama. But does that stabilize anything for them in terms of their young core bringing in Williams?
3: Well, I gotta tell you, I think if you gave Troy Weaver Truths here I and mean, he would take Victor Wembanyama over,
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, you and me both. Right.
3: And, and in, fact, in, fact, the guy, in fact, they got Victor Wembanyama it probably would have got Monty Williams a lot easier when I had to <laughs> break the bank. But I, I I certainly will tell you that coaching agents, you know, were salivating at this um, like I am when Sunday sauce hits the table as an Italian. So I think uh, to me, it, it, I, it, you know, then this is the game now that gets played, right? If Monty Williams is worth X, then right. – upcoming coaches worth why and and the floor for salaries for coaches just rose dramatically and you know good for them because I got to tell you lately the trend had been if you want a coach of the year award or you want a a, a championship you're out of here in like a couple of years <laughs> it, it was kind of a wild trend for a little bit and so now maybe this stabilizes that respectfully i don't know if monty williams stabilizes the detroit pistons um Know that that he, he's not exactly playing small forward out there, but he is a good <laughs> coach that's going to maximize their, um, you know, their ceiling every year, in my opinion. And uh, they they needed a guy that's going to be a stabilizing force. I think for them, Monty has that opportunity, and we saw what he did in in Phoenix, how he can change the culture there.
2: Oh, Michael, thanks so much for your time, my man. I appreciate the insight, the humor, all of the above. And if I had to say so, I'd give you all the big bucks, my friend. <laughs> you keep up the good work.
3: I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. You could, uh, you could forward that for sure to, to my guys, but <laughs> knock on wood, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty well off and I'm thankful. So it's a blessing, but always good to chat with you. Enjoy the weekend. And, uh, should be a fun draft coming up here for uh, for the Pacers.
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks, Michael. That was Michael Scotto, NBA writer, podcast host for Hoops Hype. You can follow him at, at Mike A. Scotto on Twitter.
1: Jimmy Cook, James Boyd, Eddie Garrison with nice tunes, as always, behind the ones and twos. Big day for Purdue fans across the country, especially up in West Lafayette as Zach Eady, National Player of the Year, decides to come back, give it one more go-round with Matt Painter and company. Our next guest was on this beat throughout that process and reacted and covered to it last night with the Lafayette Journal and Courier. It's Sam King. Sam, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing a lot better now that I uh, don't have to <laughs> refresh my computer about it. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that, Sam. I'm glad to hear that it wasn't just uh, fans and talk radio hosts alike. It was also those on the beat continually using those thumbs as much as possible to get Twitter refreshed.
0: Well, I set up an alert on uh, Zach's Instagram and his Twitter account. So um, eventually I just submitted and I was like, this isn't going to happen until late and Fortunately, I was smart to do that, and and as soon as he put it on Twitter, I was able to see it.
1: We discussed yesterday our predictions of what we thought was going to happen, and while we weren't going out on a limb with this, most of us felt like Zach Eadie was going to come back. I felt like throughout this whole process that if the NIL money was strong enough and the desire to finish up at Purdue was strong enough, he would likely head back was it close at all in this process we know he shined out and showed off a bit within the combine but was this ever a real close decision
0: i really thought he was coming back all along that's not any inside knowledge that's just kind of my beliefs when you see that he was you know a second round pick um some people had him you know as low as the, the 60th pick in the draft which um if you get in that territory you're in danger of not getting picked at all i don't know if a few years ago Um, this would have happened, but NIL has done wonders for college basketball and and bringing these players back where in the past some of those guys would just take the risk knowing that somehow you're going to get paid, whether it's overseas or you're in the developmental league or whatever it is, um, versus going to college, going to class, not getting anything out of it. Um, But uh, he's going to to make a lot of money uh, and do so while still being a college basketball player, which is great for the college game.
2: Sam, I find it hilarious that you had to turn on the post notifications because I don't know if anyone could have predicted that journalism would look how it does today where we have to be on our phones so much and that's where most of the news comes from. But now that you've done that, he's coming back, how does Zach Eady change the landscape for not only Purdue, not only the Big Ten, but for the country?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, Purdue, I think Purdue would have been fine. Even if, if Zach Eadie had stayed in the draft, uh, with him coming back, clearly uh, much better. That that boosts the whole roster, and I think now when you start looking at projections, Purdue's a you know preseason top five team. And uh, I think that uh, you know when I started looking at this team a year ago, I thought last year maybe was uh, a lot of overachieving. Uh, Purdue had a great non-conference, uh, beat some big teams, and vaulted from unranked to the top of the poll. Um, in a matter of basically a few weeks. So uh, maybe got ahead of themselves there and, and uh, down the stretch did not play as well as it had earlier in the season. But uh, now you've got all these expectations. Your freshman guards are seasoned. Uh, you've got more continuity working together and things like that. And I think that you know Purdue probably is now the favorite to win the Big Ten or right there with Michigan State um, and is a team that should be Uh, discussed as a a Final Four team. Now, there's a lot of scenarios and and things that can happen before now in March, but uh, at least in the early uh, discussion, I think Purdue's right there with, you know, the the Kansas' of the world and, and teams like that.
1: If this is a healthy roster come the start of the college basketball season, to that end, whose shoulders bear the most weight for Purdue ending the drought since 1980 of hanging a Final Four banner? Is it Matt Painter zach edy with his return now is it the expectations for a leap forward from lawyer and smith who wears the most weight with where these expectations are and arguably an all-time high for Purdue basketball
0: yeah i, I will not be surprised uh, and it's probably very likely that zach edy's stats are not what they were a year ago he was so much of what purdue did and uh, they relied on him quite a bit. I think Braden Smith, now being a sophomore point guard, starting for a whole season, and showing that he's uh, you know, capable of being a scorer, he just kind of at times stepped away from that role and became more of a facilitator and things like that. I think uh, he's going to have to have a, a big year where he's averaging 10 to 15 points a game. I think Purdue will probably have to do some different things um, offensively. It's not just going to have Zach come down, post up in the, the paint, and drop the ball off to him and hope he makes a play or, or execute a pick-and-roll and lob it up to a guy who's seven foot four and is going to jump over the top of somebody and dunk it. Uh, we knew, uh, those of us who are around Purdue basketball, that he can shoot. He's not um, some big ogre that stands in the lane and, and has no footwork or, or speed or anything like that. And I think that was the biggest thing Zach knew about himself but had to prove to NBA scouts when he went to the Combine and then people saw what a lot of us knew was that, you know, he's not just some stiff that can't play any other way but back to the basket. Uh, but now does Purdue utilize that? Do, does Zach become somebody who can step out and hit an elbow jumper, um, can extend the offense and open the lane for other people? Uh, what Purdue will have is two guys that, that nobody's talking about right now uh, that the team did not have last year, and that's uh, Miles Colvin, who's an incoming freshman, and cam heidi who redshirted last year they are uh, the type of athletes that can get to the basket create for themselves elevate over people and um you know probably throw down some highlight uh, dunks that uh, you know the team that this year just didn't have that type of a player and probably what the team needed at times because the shooting was really good for for stretches but down the, the end of the season uh just missed three pointers and, and purdue re- relied on having a seven foot four guy in the paint and uh, that opening up the, the outside shots for players, um, you know, kind of lived and died by the three there at the end of the season. And uh, when they weren't following, Purdue looked like a totally different team. So to answer your question in short, I think it's, it's Braden Smith's going to have to step up and be more of a scorer while also doing a lot of the things that made him successful last year. But then these uh, two incoming freshmen, Heidi and, and Colvin, are going to have to be guys that uh, make Purdue's offense look a little bit different than it did a year ago.
2: Well, Sam, I truly believe that Zach Eady, even as a National Player of the Year, is a bit underrated because of the talks about the NBA and things like that. He's still one of the best players in the sport when it comes to the college level. And he might be a little undersized. I know he was listed at 7'4 on the official roster, 7'3 at the Combine. So, you know, undersized Zach Eady, I'll say that too, is a joke. But um, in all seriousness, When you look at what it means for this state in particular, how much juice do you think it adds for him to come back and have another crack at IU? Because we know no matter who's on either roster any year, it's always going to be the game that this state circles. And obviously I feel like there's going to be a a brighter circle around this year's matchups because of his return.
0: Yeah, and uh, to your first point, uh, for somebody who has to video interviews with Zach Eadie, And my (laughs) arms go numb from holding the camera as high above my head as I can. He's definitely not undersized. But, (laughs) yeah, I think that the the main thing that Zach Eadie had in coming back was um, team success. He's accomplished everything individually you can do in college basketball. And uh, it really is about the team. And that was kind of his mantra all year. Whenever you would ask him about personal achievements, it was always – about the team, and he's a team-first guy. And I think he wants to help Purdue, you know, beat the rival. Um, That was very disheartening. You know, the the game at Bloomington last year was um, frustrating because it was just really one bad half that Purdue had and uh, outplayed Indiana um, for most of the second half and just made a mistake late. Um, But then to come back at at Mackey Arena, where Purdue almost never loses, and have Jalen hood Shafino just just cook them, absolutely cook them. And uh, that was kind of embarrassing to get swept by your rival when you dominated that series in recent years so that probably is a big big thing when it gets to the point where they play each other next year it's like hey we we owe those guys one now because they got us twice last year and then on top of that it is you know i I hate to say final four or bust because there's so many things that have to happen Mm -hmm. to get through a one and done tournament but uh you kind of get the feel like hey i came back to do something that this program hasn't done for over 40 years now
1: Yeah, as the IU grad in the room, that was tough to see. I agree, twice last year. Sam King joined us here at the Lafayette Journal and Courier, covers the (laughs) Purdue Boilermakers, does a great job and nice enough to take some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Sam, every college fan base in the age of NIL gets worried or fearful that they're going to be left behind, that perhaps their coaching staff or their alumni base will not be quite as forward-thinking as other programs have been about utilizing NIL – and not being, like I said, left behind in the Stone Age. Does this move of retaining Zach Eady and I know we'll never know the official figure, but does this move lay to rest any fears or worries that Purdue would get left behind in the NIL age?
0: I think that, although I think Purdue was late to the party in trying to set up a plan uh, for how to get its student-athletes paid, uh, Purdue does have a, a solid uh, thing in place now with athletic director michael binsky made it a big point of emphasis i think a couple of years ago brought all the coaches in for a meeting and said hey we got to come up with some ideas here on how we can do this or we're going to miss out on some athletes that we would normally get so i think and, and zach's in a different boat by himself because of what he's accomplished and who he is um he you know they can sell hockey jerseys they could probably sell soccer jerseys or whatever they wanted to with his name on the back and and make him a lot of money. But, uh, I think that, you know, you see more and more and it's probably this way everywhere, but, but I'm around Purdue's program. So I see it, um, just t-shirts of players that maybe even are, not star players, but, uh, the NIL set up where you can get any kind of t-shirt with Purdue on the front and a name, and number on the back and things like that. And then I've seen more and more of these athletes getting out and doing, uh, youth camps in the summer, uh, you know, shooting camps. Mason Gillis totally capitalizing on hitting nine threes against Penn State last year um, is now hosting shooting camps. And you can put by that Purdue's, you know, single game three point record holder. And that maybe holds some weight. And, and people think, okay, that guy knows how to shoot. I should go to this camp. Um, but yeah, I think that Purdue's got some things in place where these athletes can capitalize on their name and, and image and likeness, I guess, what NIL stands for.
2: To I guess add to that, the thing about Zach Eady that made it unique with him coming back, at least in my eyes, was that he wasn't using a fifth year, you know, COVID year. He wasn't a sixth year. He wasn't a postgrad. He's a senior, a regular senior. So is this, do you think this could be his last ride? Or is there a possibility that, you know, he'll just go through this process again next year and kind of see where he's at and if he wants to use that COVID year to run it back again?
0: Yeah, I think that you know a lot of things are probably going to play into that. Does Purdue have another disappointing end of the season? Um, does that go through the? I, I think he goes through the process again, no matter what. Um, but you do that to get the feedback about where you think you'll you'll land in the draft, how much money you'll make. You know, potentially our team's telling you, "Hey, we've got a spot for you or a uh, plan for you." Uh, there's a lot of things and. and even though most of us assumed that Zach E.D. was coming back, I wholeheartedly believe that he was kind of waiting until the last minute to see who withdrew their name from the draft and, and decided to go back to school and um, whatnot because he was you know, one of the last guys who decided last night. It was after 9 p.m. and getting down to the final two-plus hours uh, before he had to make a decision. So, um, I mean, he could. And the thing people don't know about Zach, um, or some people might, is he reclassified, so he's actually a year younger than his, his college status. Um, he could have been in high school for another year, and uh, he just decided that uh, it was time for him to move on from IMG Academy, where he basically played basketball for, for two years, and that was the only basketball background he had when he came to Purdue. And then uh, from there, it's been all about the work ethic and desire to get better and improve at a lot of things, and clearly he's done that. But uh, I think it's going to come down to probably this – same scenario last year like do I think I can come back and win a national championship or um because you know I'm not gonna I don't think Zachary, he's probably gonna be the national player of the year again he'll be you know a dynamic rebounder he'll be able to score and, and do some things but he's not gonna be the guy that uh that he was this year and that's probably to the benefit of Purdue which it can do some different things and force defenses to not just kind of go through a week of practice knowing how we're gonna set up and defend that team
2: you touched on it a bit there I'm looking at Zach Eadie's bio on Purdue's website. Last season, he became the third high major player, joining Michael Beasley, Kevin Durant, to rank top 10 in NCAA in both scoring and rebounds in the last 20 years. And so you touched on a little bit there as far as his development, but can you speak a little bit more about just how far he's come as a basketball player, considering this is not a lifelong endeavor that he's been on like most players that are at his level now?
0: Yeah, and, and Matt Painter said this several times last year. Um, because he had such little basketball experience, he never really picked up any bad habits or, or anything like that. Um, it was all everything that he was learning. He was learning and soaking in, and and working on to get better. And uh, he takes uh, you know he takes criticism, which some players don't. Some players. Uh, don't want to hear the negatives but he takes that and and uses it to say okay i need to get better at this and um you know he's a 70 plus percent free throw shooter which is uncharacteristic for someone who's i guess seven three and a quarter officially uh if you go by the (laughs) combine measurements um and he can he can shoot he just that's not what purdue needed him to do last year um but yeah i kind of forget what your question was um no just the,
2: the development of him and just seeing how it's it's kind of manifested over the last few years
0: yeah um people didn't think he was going to be able to play 30 plus minutes a game last year I don't think because he had been a guy that split time with Travion Williams as a freshman and sophomore and you know at, at times would come in and pick up two or three quick fouls and come right back out of the game and, and that's maybe the biggest area where Purdue couldn't afford to have him out of games for, uh, you know, 15 minutes of a half last year. And uh, he really did a great job at not fouling people at times. And um, some of that's how the game's officiated. And uh, he also kind of embraced what he is, uh, maybe from his hockey background growing up. Um, he was getting, you know, punched, kicked, kneed in the, the backside uh, throughout the course of the season. And, and you can plead with the referees all you want, but um, there's not going to be a lot of... Um, feeling sorry for a guy that's that big when he's got scratches and bruises all over him because uh, he's definitely given as much as he's receiving uh, as far as punishment goes.
1: Sam King covers Purdue for the Lafayette Journal and Courier. Here with on the Fan Midday Show. How much for Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer, as they have another year under their belts, how much of their growth and development is centered around confidence And in a large part, being able to take that workload off of Zach Eady, as Matt Painter kind of alluded to a number of times throughout the season, particularly after losses last year.
0: Yeah, I I don't think that either one of those guys lacked confidence, even when Fletcher Lawyer was in a rut where he was shooting like two of 20 from three or something, I asked him. Uh, at a practice and he said no I'm you know next game I'll I'll go out and knock five or six down and be fine Um, but I think the biggest thing is they've gone through that freshman season and when you're going through a a high school schedule you play 20 to 25 games depending how far you go in the state tournament when you go to college you play that schedule and there's still 10 games before you get to the the postseason so uh, that's you know really happen to adapt because by the time you're through it you're almost like playing half of an nba schedule and when you play in the big ten which is a league that allows you to be physical and um you know kind of low, lower scoring games and um it's, it's maybe a little bit more brutal uh, as you can see when you get in the ncaa tournament and see how some of these other major programs uh play and how they design their offense uh, i think that even though the players won't say this and i don't think the coaches will say it those two guys did at one point hit a wall where it was like, man, you know, this is usually the end of my season, and I'm gearing up to go to AAU, which is a completely different animal than, than organized basketball uh, at the college or high school level. And um, I think it wore on them a bit. So I think that's, you know, why the production was down from those two. Uh, now having gone through it, you hope that uh, those guys are, you know, able to get to that wall and just kind of break through it versus uh, having. Uh, some off games where you need them to step up and score and they're just not making it happen.
2: Sam, you've been there to document this, witness this, but how have you seen Matt Painter sort of shoulder the expectations that come along with building this program to the point where they're considered one of the best in the country but not being able to get over that hump in the postseason? How have you seen him kind of navigate that and maybe internalize it going into another season where Obviously, the expectations are very high.
0: Yeah, um, gosh, if you look at Tony Bennett's career at Virginia, um, it is basically Matt Painter's to a T, uh, except for one game where the two played each other and Virginia hits a, a last-second shot and ends up going to the Final Four and winning the national championship, and Purdue goes home in the Elite Eight. Um, so I think that that's something where you can look at and say, at some point, you, you just have to get lucky, and Purdue hasn't had the brace go its way at times. Um, when you look overall at Matt Painter's success, he's won a ton of games. He's been to Sweet 16s, Elite 8s, won Big Ten titles, National Coach of the Year. Basically, everything there is to have on a resume, and the knock on him is always um, he hasn't been to a Final Four. He hasn't won a national championship. So, um, Gene Katie was before him in the same boat where people are like he's not that great a coach because he, he never got to the Final Four. Um, Matt Painter is a, you know, a basketball mastermind, I believe, and he's also very truthful and he'll tell you um, straight up that he got outcoached in the NCAA tournament and he doesn't shy away from it. Um, but you say that enough and fans start to say, you know, why do you keep getting outcoached when we're paying you X million amount of dollars? Um, we need a better coach. And Uh, Sitting in Columbus for that first-round game against uh, Fraley Dickinson, the reporter next to me uh, actually did turn and say, is this a fireable offense for Matt Painter to get beat by a 16? And I said, absolutely not. Um, I think a lot of fans felt he should have been fired. Um, There was kind of no in-between. You either wanted him gone or not. Um, But I never felt that his job was in jeopardy because, like I said, I don't think last year's team – was projected to be 29 and six, a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. That was something I thought maybe more would be what this season looked like. And you do that a year ahead of schedule, and then bring basically everyone back, but David Jenkins, who was a contributor on that team, and add some more uh, weapons. I think that you know now you go into the season with those expectations, and at the end of the year, if you don't don't accomplish things, then maybe there's more room to criticize what happened. But um, you know, Matt Painter is very aware of what his reputation is and he's not going to hide from it um but at the same time he's just going to keep doing his job and um waiting for that moment where purdue hopefully does break through
1: he's sam king covers purdue bullermakers action for the lafayette journal and courier joins us here on the fan midday show sam appreciate your work and while I won't ask you to reveal your screen time over the last uh, couple of weeks, <laughs> uh, hopefully it gets a little bit lower for you and able to not have to glue yourself to the laptop or the screen as often knowing Zach is coming back. Yeah, that's going to be very helpful. But thank you guys. I appreciate being on. Thanks, Sam. That's Sam King. And you can follow him on Twitter at Samuel
2: T. King covers Purdue for the Lafayette journal and courier. Still here vibing out in the drop studio. Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, I'm James Boyd, 107.5, you're tuning into. We've had NBA, we've had Zach Eadie talk, and now we're moving over to the NFL with Cameron Wolf, covers the NFL for NFL Network. I met Cam last summer when Matt Ryan was the QB1 here in Indianapolis. One and time. The talk was about potential playoff run, outside of the Super Bowl, Obviously Cam things have changed. So before I get into that, how are you doing now that uh, the landscape has changed around Indy and the league as well?
4: No, I'm doing great, man. Um, you know, I'm excited about this year. I think what's cool for Indy and really the entire AFC South is you sort of have new blood for that quarterback position with three rookies getting drafted this year. And so this is probably the most excited I've been about the division as a whole in a long time and you know, for Indy as you guys know and your fan base knows, they've been on this sort of train of find the veteran quarterback that will keep us afloat and you know whether you loved Anthony Richardson or not now you get a a guy you can invest in and and really see grow and ideally is your future for the next 10-15 years so I think it's just exciting time for, for Colts fans.
2: Yeah I think so as well there's obviously a lot of hype around Anthony Richardson in particular and from your perspective what has it been like to see someone like him who On one hand, you're like, oh, my goodness, the stuff he can do is unbelievable. But on the other hand, it's like he wasn't a great college player. So how do you assess um, where he was drafted and what the future may hold for him if things click here in Indy with Shane Steichen?
4: Yeah, no, Anthony Richardson, to me, was the most interesting player in this draft. And, you know, luckily, I got the chance to spend some time with him this season. You know, he and his team invited me out to Jacksonville in, in March. And so I got to know him a little bit better personally, uh, met his family, and, and met a lot of the people around him. And you get to, to, to see why everybody raves about him. You know, I know on the surface, you look at it, and you say he had a 54% completion rate. He went, you know, 6-6 six in six Florida. How can this guy lead our franchise? But if you get to meet him, you get to know a lot of the ins and outs of this game, then you get to see what that potential could be in an offense that Shane Steichen is running. So, um, to me, Anthony Richardson is the quarterback that had more upside than any other player. And as I started to talk to, like, GMs and executives throughout the process, they, they told me just how much Anthony Richardson's uh, fist was maybe overblown and that if you put him in an offense that sort of assinuates his skill set, get him in a skill set of uh, receivers that, that that fit around him, then he could be a guy that becomes a, a big-time playmaker a lot quicker than people expect.
1: Cameron Wolf, NFL Network, joining us here on the Fan Midday Show. Cameron, we always talk about the advantage of having a rookie contract under your belt as a franchise and being able to really – not focus on that position from a dollars and cents standpoint but focus on other areas to try to maybe even squeak in and capture a championship during that rookie contract window a fan favorite here and one of the most dominant players when he's healthy in the national football league is jonathan taylor he's obviously entering a contract year how much of a bounce back season for him will factor into that and with the at least modern adage of Running backs can be a dime a dozen, never give them a big, massive payday. He's only 24. Is there still a, a window there for the Colts to not be hampering themselves long-term if they were to eventually pay him big money?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You hit it on a nail. Like this era of running backs, it seems like uh, very few are trying to get trying to get paid. Uh, teams are trying to pay them at high end salary, and the ones that do are typically the Christian McCaffrey's that you know can ca- receive a thousand yards and rush for a thousand yards at the same time. So you know, if we would follow the track of a lot of these other running backs, there's probably a decent chance that they say, "Hey, Jonathan Taylor will make you play out your fifth year option," um, and we're not going to give you that big contract yet. And so, if that's the case, then maybe that extends their window of having to pay a running back for a bit. But to me, I think Jonathan Jonathan Taylor's uh, probably maybe the biggest beneficiary for Anthony Richardson um, landing here because you get a quarterback who obviously is going to be a dynamic playmaker in the run game that opens up lanes for Jonathan Taylor in the read option game and the RPO game um, that he just didn't have with Matt Ryan and so I anticipate Jonathan Taylor bouncing back to be a top three top five running back uh, that he is this year and eventually he'll get his money even if it isn't immediately after the season.
2: Yeah, to piggyback off that Cam when you look at where Anthony Richardson is, you know, pretty raw prospect, hasn't played a lot as far as starts since high school. How much do you think Jonathan Taylor can help him maybe get ready faster considering that defense, you still have to account for a guy who two years ago was, you know, the rushing champ?
4: No, I think he should help a lot, really this whole offense, because if you look a little deeper into what Anthony Richardson did at Florida, he had a freshman running back and. And Trevor Etienne, actually Travis's little brother, but he's a freshman, right? They had nobody on their offense um, that was, you know, drafted in the top, in, in the top uh, three rounds, other than their guard Osiris Torrance. None mm. of those receivers are projected first-round picks, and so he'll immediately come in Indy and have a better talent base, um, not even close than what he had in Florida. And so that should help tremendously. The other token of that is you have somebody in the backfield that can help you navigate what rookies often face, which is the all-out blitzes or the confusing schemes. You got someone in Jonathan Taylor that can point out, okay, this is what it means when that Mike linebacker is flashing there, or when a safety is coming back and showing blitz. And so uh, Anthony Richardson is very smart. You know, I've seen him in the film room, and he only really needs to learn things once or twice before he gets it. But if you got a backfield mate that can help you out, maybe that that helps your learning curve a bit.
1: Cameron where do you stand on and there's no real right or wrong paths to this right it's all situational but where do you stand on the start versus sit a rookie out of the gate camp
4: oh for Anthony Richardson I'm absolutely starting on week one and not looking back um, <laughs> I think that the big thing for him is you know all the knocks against him was that he started 12 13 games in college and so why wouldn't I want to see him get those reps get that experience early on even if there's some some growing pains you know just the reality is Gardner Minshew is not going to be your future and I'm not even sure year one if Gardner Minshew gives you a better chance to win and so I want to see Anthony Richardson grow I want to see him get some reps I want to see how he responds to different defensive coverages um, and I think he's going to surprise some people in his ability um, you think about just quarterbacks that had I don't want to say comparable skill sets but had the quote unquote okay they're run first guys what maybe not the accuracy coming out of college like Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts both of those guys were able to to survive in year 1 with low Accuracy percentages, and then they got better through reps. And then year two and year three with continuity in the system, we saw them develop into the pastures they are now. And so, I think you could hope for Anthony Richardson has had that same uh, trajectory, but that doesn't start until you play him on the field. So I'm playing him week one, and I'm not taking him off the field unless he's hurt.
2: Whether he starts week one or not, and again. Indy fans probably loved that you said that because that's all they ever say in my mentions. And I'm like, hey, I'm not making that decision. But how much of an asset is Gardner Minshew in that quarterback room considering his experience with Shane Sykin and just how self-aware he is as a player and being a pretty good one when he's been giving chances in the league?
4: Yeah, no, Gardner Minshew's done it all, right? He's been a starter. He's been a backup. He's a guy who um, who's probably exceeded what he was expected to in the league being a, a late-round draft pick. Um, obviously knows the game, and I'm not sure how many Colts fans are aware of this, but they already have a, a really good relationship. They trained together uh, down in Jacksonville. I actually spent like three days with both of them when I was there in March, and so I saw Gardner Minshew uh, working out with Anthony Richardson. They would take turns through passing drills, and Gardner Gardner would show Anthony something, and Anthony might show Gardner something. And so they feed off each other, all of their different skill sets. And so I don't think there will be any animosity in that quarterback room. I think it will actually be the opposite. And so even if Gardner gets that, that day one starting job, I think that it's only growth uh, that, that Anthony can get from a guy like him. Whereas you're in a different situation if a Matt Ryan's there, you may have a little bit more of an adversarial relationship because that guy is still trying to protect his starting job, and maybe maybe he's a little bit less apt to, to be that mentor that I think uh, Gardner Gardner will be.
1: Cameron Wolf covers the NFL nationally for NFL Network with us here on the Fan Midday Show. I want to jump to a team that is a couple steps ahead of where the Colts want to be and in a different division, in fact, in the AFC East and the Miami Dolphins. When you look at what they did this offseason and where they want to go in that competitive AFC East, where is the biggest... Where's the biggest impact point for them Is it the addition of Vic Vangio And Jalen Ramsey or is it the health Of Tua
4: yeah, I think yes is the answer, both of them, <laughs> on both sides of the ball. Uh, I think the biggest question by far surrounding this team is can the quarterback stay healthy? Um, you, pe- you look at people who doubt the Dolphins, that's the point they'll, they'll point to. They'll say that Tua is one concussion away from his career being threatened. How can you trust that guy being your starter? Uh, and, and, and they have some valid points there. You know, we had multiple concussions last year, missed five games. Um, but his supporters will point to the point that they were a top five offense when he was healthy. The fact that they have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle on the roster makes them maybe the most explosive offensive football. And so I, I, I see both sides of it. The reality is for the Dolphins is Tua's got to stay healthy. The offensive line's got to protect him. He's got to find a way not to get those injuries for this season to matter at all. Um, but the biggest difference maker this offseason was Big Bangio and Jalen Ramsey coming into this building. Uh, as quiet as it's kept, the Dolphins had one of the worst defenses of football last year uh, after, you know, after the previous years being pretty solid in that area. And so they go away from that blitz happy scheme that they ran in the uh, Brian Flores and Josh Boyer era. And now they're a lot more zone scheme. Jalen Ramsey should help out Xavier Howard on the other side. And I think this team can go mano a mano with the Bills and the Jets. And, and possibly win this division if their quarterback can stay healthy. I think they're that good.
2: So to pivot to another AFC's team, the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin was obviously one of the biggest stories in the league last season because of yep. the unique injury or, or incident that happened. Down here in Indy, Rodney Thomas is one of his best friends growing up. You know, they've known each other for a long time. You were covering the DeMar Hamlin situation a lot. From a personal standpoint, I guess taking the reporter hat off for a moment, how gratifying is it to see someone go through that and having to cover that and seeing him come out on the other side now where he's announced he's going to try to make his return to the NFL?
4: Yeah, no, James, that, you know, great question. That was probably the most impactful story I've, I've ever covered in my career and may. Be the biggest one I cover in my career, you know. Just given, um, you know, the the fear that a lot of us had at that situation. You know, I'm I'm human as well. You know, my job was to be the chronicle or the reporter in that situation, but you weren't sure how he was going to come out. From that perspective, and not just from a football perspective, from a health, you know, from a uh, quality of life perspective, and he is seemingly a, a god, god performed miracle uh, that he came out, and now he's back back to playing football, and um, I think that you know everybody who was touched by that situation. I think came out and grew from it. You mentioned Rodney. I remember talking to his family members who were telling me about Rodney coming to visit um, and telling me about some of his other teammates and the impact that had on his growth. And so that's something they'll, they'll remember forever. Tomorrow remember forever. And so I think that day for all of us who were there or were impacted with this will never leave us. And as we see him kind of come close to the football, I think it's, it's kind of a reminder of how precious this sport is that we love and how precious life is as well.
1: Cameron Wolf of NFL Network joins us on the Fan Midday Show. Cameron, as you look at the remaining avenues for free agents this offseason, or or newly minted free agents, I should say, since he just got uh, put on the ability to sign with another team back on Monday, where is the best fit, both from a money standpoint, assuming that matters to him, as well as a fit offensively for DeAndre Hopkins at this stage of his career?
4: Yeah, at this stage, he's got to go to a place where he's got a quarterback that he can trust. Uh, and obviously, he wants the money that 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 qualifies for that too, which is often hard to get both. Right. So the teams that we've heard most commonly connected with them, the Chiefs and the Bills, are both money tight. And so you got to figure: does he want to go to one of the two better quarterbacks in the league, or is he willing to take less to go to a place like Houston, where he's had some success uh, before, but you know maybe not as ready to win as the Chiefs or the Bills? Does he go to a place like Tennessee, which needs a receiver, um, but also may not be as ready? To win at this stage, does he go to another money type place like Baltimore? I think ultimately DeAndre Hopkins is going to determine what he prefers more: is he value great quarterback play and the opportunity to win, or does he value money? Because I don't know if there's going to be a, a perfect marriage where you can get that big bag, but also get a chance to play with an elite quarterback who has a chance to win a ring.
2: So Cam, I guess keeping it in the AFC because they're pretty intriguing this time of year for whatever reason. Looking at Aaron Rodgers, he hasn't been able to practice the last few days. Is it concerning at all he's not been available considering that he is joining a new franchise with new players and he has to build that chemistry? Or are you in the camp of, you know, hey, it's not that big of a deal as long as he's ready by training camp?
4: Yeah, I'm not worried about it. Um, yeah, you know, I don't. I don't remember the last time Aaron Rodgers participated in OTAs. It might have been 10 years ago. He's just not an OTA guy. Um, I think he probably just went to Jets OTAs because of the the uh, appearance of it. He doesn't want to show up to a new team and not show up for camp. I'm I'm usually of a believer that OTAs don't have a ton of value for for most veterans, but you're running a new scheme there probably is some value I think the, the one thing it does it does remind us as good as Aaron Rodgers is he's still uh 40 40 or almost 40 years old and so those guys tend to break down a little bit easier they tend to have a little bit more um you know brittle uh bones so to speak as an old man and so uh you know we got kind of spoiled with Tom Brady seeing him play to 45 that's not really the norm and so I think the fact that he's having a calf injury this early is not necessarily a worrisome thing for for the Jets as much as a reminder that he's really year to year. And at any point, we could see sort of the fall off of Aaron Rodgers, um, but right now, they're just hoping they catch lightning in the bottle for the next year or two and try to steal some, some, some wins, some playoff bursts, and, and maybe even more.
1: Cameron, last thing on my end. It was a very weird... 12 to 24 months surrounding Orlando Brown Jr. and what his future was going to be in terms of which team he would end up with. Uh, Kansas City had made him a a relatively rich offer that he wanted to bet on himself for for another year. He ends up with less than what was initially offered to him to go to Cincinnati. So it's kind of a two-part question. What went into him ending up with the Bengals? And then with Joe Burrow, they're always going to be in contention. Where is the outlook for Cincinnati as they try to get back to the Super Bowl and ultimately win the thing next year?
4: Yeah, good question. As far as Orlando Brown Jr., my understanding is he was really adamant on playing left tackle, and he also was valued a little bit differently um, than maybe he initially thought. As far as his market, uh, I think he thought that he was going to be able to, you know, get twenty plus million dollars, and ultimately did not. Happen that way, and sometimes it happens at free agency where you may overvalue yourself a little bit. You have a little bit of more stringent requirements, and then a team moves on. You know, you have to make these decisions quickly, and so you know the the Chiefs moved on and went for a Jawan Taylor, and they ultimately didn't have the money to go for Orlando Brown again. And so I think that's what led him to Cincinnati. I also do think it's a good fit. Joe Burrow's been dying to have you know, reliable offensive tackles. And I think Orlando Brown, when he's in shape, when he's healthy, um, is a very reliable tackle for them. And so um, I, I think that, you know, he could have been in worse places um, but I'm very eager to see how it impacts the Chiefs. You know, they, they went out there and they, they signed Jawan Taylor. I think he's going to end up playing right tackle now that they signed another left tackle. Um, but Patrick Mahomes needs that protection as well. And so that's going to be one to follow throughout the year, uh, which of those tackles end up being better for their teams, Jawan Taylor or Orlando Brown. And, I, you know, as far as the Bengals, I think that they have been one or two plays away the last two or three years. And, you know, maybe Orlando Brown's that piece. Maybe it's some guys they got in the draft. Um, But I think there's no reason to think that, hey, either a combination of of Burrow, um, Mahomes, and Allen aren't in the AFC Championship once again. And so two of those three, that's just been the flow in the AFC.
2: Cam, really appreciate your time. I look forward to potentially seeing you in Indy. I know there's going to be somebody making their way down to see the kid from Florida and what he's capable of on the field, but you continue the great work. Keep rising, my man. And and thanks again for all you kind of gave me when I first joined the NFL world.
4: Absolutely. No, I appreciate you, James. Appreciate y'all. Always uh, looking forward to seeing you guys in Indy. I'm sure I'll make my way there at some point and we'll just pop it up and have a good time.
2: Sounds good. That was Cameron Wolf covers the NFL nationally for NFL Network.